We're going to be in John chapter 3, verses 9 through 21. So if you want to open your Bibles to John chapter 3, verses 9 through 21. Um, also, before we go, there are a few Bibles there in front of you. I uh, would love for you to utilize those books even as we preach. Uh, it's really wonderful to have the Word of God open in front of us as we can reference it and continue to address what's actually being said in the Scriptures. And if you don't have a Bible, we'd love for you to take that home. We also have some other ones if you uh, would prefer uh, maybe a, a soft cover Bible. Uh, the purpose that we want to give these away, one is a gift and we want to serve you, but two, we want you to be able to test what we say in Scripture. <clears throat> this is not opinion. This is not me getting up here because I have a microphone and expressing how I think that we should live. This is simply the Word of God. We want everyone to understand that, so we want people to have a reference of what God is actually saying. Uh, we will read John chapter 3, verses 9 through 21. Again, John chapter 3, 9 through 21. It will be on the screen, but hopefully you have your Bibles open. <clears throat> Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that, he, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Have a seat. Let me pray for us. <clears throat> Father, we thank you for your grace and your love. We thank you for your son. As we look at this, this passage, Lord, it, it, it rings so truly of how you care for us and how you have provided a way, Lord. It makes me think back to this recognition that there are, there are two roads in life. There are two ways, and, and, and broad is the way to destruction, but narrow is the way to heaven. Or there's so much confusion going on in the world. There's so, much, so many things that constantly are attempting to disciple us, Lord. And I ask that you focus our attention. Lord, give us your spirit in a way that we can see and have this truth illuminated today. Lord, provide us a deeper faith and a greater understanding of your word. And Lord, if we do not possess your spirit, Lord, give it to us now so we can understand this vital truth to be in the life of Christ. Lord, be with us today. In Christ's name, amen. So today's passage is really this second part of Jesus' gospel conversation with Nicodemus. If you remember, Nicodemus had come to Jesus in the cover of darkness, in the cover of night, and he did this because he was part of an elite group of Pharisees called the Sanhedrin. 
The Sanhedrin were religious leaders. They, they, they were theological leaders. They ruled over the Jewish people. And these Jewish leaders rightly recognized that Jesus' miracles were of God. They rightly understood that he was only able to do these things because of God. But what they missed because of their spiritual blindness was that Jesus wasn't just empowered by God, but that he was God. They missed that because of their spiritual blindness. Jesus then used an Old Testament prophecy to articulate to Nicodemus what he needed most of all, and that was to be born again. Remember, Nicodemus came to him and says these things. We understand that you're this great teacher because you could only do these things if God was with you, and Jesus doesn't respond. He simply tells Nicodemus what he absolutely needs most, and that is a new birth. You see, in order for us to understand the things of heaven, we must be born again, or we must be born from above, as that term can be translated as well. We must be born from above. In 1 Corinthians 12, Paul tells us that the world, those who are perishing, find the word of the cross to be folly. They find it to be foolish, but to those who have been saved, those who have been given this new spirit within them, they receive that same truth as the power of God. And I said this last week that Nicodemus, in the condition that he was in, Nicodemus may have been able to see the miracles that Jesus was performing, but he didn't have the eyes to see, in fact, the kingdom of God that was before him. He could see the the miraculous works. He could recognize that something was being done, but he actually wasn't able to see. He wasn't able to witness before him the kingdom of God. He couldn't see what the kingdom of God looked like. And 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 that is proven to us, or it's proven in his response to Jesus in verse 9. In verse 9, Nicodemus said, how can these things be? Jesus lays out this truth, and Nicodemus simply says, how can this happen? This doesn't make any sense. How can these things be? And then Jesus rebukes Nicodemus for simply not understanding God's word, which he was supposed to. Verse 10, Jesus answers him, are you the teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things? Remember, Nicodemus, again, is this theological leader. He ruled over the people of Israel. Therefore, he had to have memorized all of, if not most of, what we call the Old Testament, but apparently, even though he knew Ezekiel 36, which Jesus was referencing in the passage of last week, he wasn't able to understand what it meant. Even though he knew cognitively Ezekiel 36, he didn't understand what it was actually saying. We, as why we have his response and why we have Jesus' rebuke. He wasn't able to process it in his heart. He, didn't, he wasn't able to uh, He was listening, but he wasn't hearing. If you get that white man can't jump reference. Jesus continues, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended to heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal 
life. Now, there is a lot that's being said in those four, five passages. First off, Jesus is once again emphasizing that uh, emphasizing our need of God's power to see and understand the things of heaven. And when Jesus says, we speak of what we know and bear witness of what we have seen, he's talking about himself, his disciples, and John the Baptist. Because we've continued to try and set this scene. So imagine what's going on. Nicodemus is, is on this, this fact-finding mission. He's trying to understand how or why these miracles are happening. So no doubt he and the other leaders are, are, are constantly attempting to talk to these people who are following after Jesus. They're trying to talk to his disciples like we saw back in chapter 1 in which we're going to continue to see as we go through this gospel. And what they simply continue to find is that there's this truth that is understood and it's being testified about. But Jesus says to Nicodemus, you do not receive a testimony. They can hear this truth. They can hear it proclaimed and preached and, and shouted from the rooftops, but Jesus says, you do not receive our testimony. He's saying, Nicodemus, you nor the other religious leaders of Israel have the truth. You just don't have the truth. And he continues by proving his point in verse 12. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, if I've used common ideals, if I've used common ways of speech and you still don't understand me, how can I believe if I tell you heavenly things? Jesus did reference Ezekiel 33 back in verses 5 and 8. We've already said that. But he also explained that same truth with an earthly parable. He didn't just reference some obscured text back in the Old Testament hoping that Nicodemus understood that. He then explains Ezekiel 36 by this earthly parable about wind and the Spirit and all sorts of things. In verse 8, the wind represented the Holy Spirit as he spoke to Nicodemus, and its effects are seen in our own new birth and sanctification. So he's talking about when he explains that the, the wind goes wherever it wants to go and no one knows where it's going to go or where it's come from. That is the spirit. That's what he's articulating to Nicodemus. And the effects of the wind are our are, are effectual uh, salvation and sanctification. And what he's saying with that parable, what he's attempting to say to Nicodemus with an earthly parable is this. He's trying to tell us that it's God's decision. It's by God's authority as to who's given salvation and born again. It's God's decision. It's not your decision, Nicodemus. There's nothing that you can physically do in this life to achieve salvation. This is given to you by God. It's by His authority as He is the creator of all things. Therefore, He determines all things. He is the one who causes the new birth. It's just like our physical birth. It just is. It's just like our physical birth. There's nobody in this room who chose to be born, right? There's nobody in this room who chose to be born. And Jesus says, so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Jesus used an earthly thing to explain a heavenly reality, and Nicodemus didn't get it because he was not yet born from above. Understand? He didn't quite have the eyes to see or the heart to receive or the ears to hear. And then moving on in verse 13, Jesus solidifies this by talking about his own incarnation. 
This is what he says, verse 13. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. No one has done this. He's saying that the only one who has the proper knowledge of those heavenly realities is the one who's from heaven, and that's the Son of Man. That's, that's himself. That's Jesus. You see, Jesus likes to refer to himself often as the Son of Man because, like we've said before, it references back to this vision that we find from the prophet Daniel. Again, something that Nicodemus and the Pharisees should have known. Remember, they have memorized the majority of the Old Testament, if not all of it. So this is a reference to the vision of the prophet Daniel. Daniel says this in, verse, in chapter 7. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Amen. That is how Jesus is referring to himself, and Nicodemus should have understood. What he's saying is that all of the Bible, all of God's word is about Jesus, and it's there for us to understand him. It is not some way for us to simply live better as people, to to understand how we can uh, achieve for God. No, it is simply a proclamation of who Christ is. It's, it's, It's all there for us to understand Him. So Jesus, therefore, to explain to Nicodemus, uses another Old Testament proof. He does this to explain to Nicodemus who he actually is. And he says in verse 14, And just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. Now this can sound a bit obscure. Why is Moses lifting up this snake in the wilderness? This can seem obscure, but it wouldn't have been for the Jewish people. You see, this is a very prominent moment in Israel's history. This is a very particular moment in Israel's history, and we can read about it in Numbers 21, but let me just tell you what's going on. In that moment of Israel's history, at that moment, Israel has been delivered from their slavery in Egypt. They were walking in the desert. They were on their way to the promised land, and God has continued to provide for their physical needs over and over and over again by raining down food from heaven. It's called manna. He's raining down this food constantly, every single day, to provide for them. But at a certain point in their journey, the people of God, they just simply become impatient. They become impatient and they begin to grumble at God and Moses. They're like, we're tired of the desert. We're tired of traveling. We're tired of this miraculous food that's falling from the sky. So God sends a plague. He sends a plague, but not to Egypt, not this time. He sends it to his people. He sends a plague to his people. This time, God sends fiery serpents into their camp, and these serpents come in there, and they bite the people of God, and many people die. God sends fiery serpents into their camp to bite the people to cause them death. God's intent was not death. God's intent was not 
death. He wasn't trying to weed out the complainers. Instead, he was trying to make a way for repentance. He was making a way for repentance. You see, God also instructed Moses to cast a bronze snake and place it on a staff, and then he told him to elevate this staff with this bronze snake up in the air so that anyone who was stung by the snake's bite could look upon it and be healed. They could look to the mountain. They could look to the top where they, it, was, it was above the entire encampment. They could look up, see the snake, and be healed. And what's not not directly mentioned in this account is how many people actually died. It says many people died, but how many people actually died? If we continue to put ourselves in this moment and we apply the question, why is Jesus sharing this with Nicodemus right now? Why is he talking about this kind of obscure passage to us a very real reality to them. Why is Jesus sharing this with Nicodemus in this moment? If we understand that question or if we're asking that question, we can recognize that this story speaks so clearly to everything that's still happening today. Everything that's still happening today. The people were suffering. They were suffering from the bite of the serpent and despite coming face to face With death, they still refused to trust in God's promise and repent. You understand the correlation? They didn't, despite being face to face with death, they still refused to trust in God's promise and repent, even though they were in terror, because they knew what was going to happen to them because of the serpent's sting. Still, some chose death instead of trusting in God's prescribed cure, even though the recovery rate was a thousand percent. Many still died, even though the truth was there, even though the promise was real. Many still died. And this foreshadows the gospel because of what Jesus says. He says at the end of verse 14 and 15, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. The promise is before us. The truth is before us. Jesus being lifted up here has two meanings. One, Jesus is talking about His impending crucifixion. He must be lifted up on the cross. And the second, Jesus is also talking about his eternal exaltation. Whoever trusts in him as Savior as well as Lord, it's not just a get-out-of-jail-free card. It is, Lord, I will follow you, Lord. I will obey your commandments, and by that obedience, you will understand my love. You will know my love. So whoever trusts in him as Savior and as Lord, that person will have eternal life. That's the truth that is laid out before us. Because even though Christ is the one who has been lifted up, he is the one who took on the sting of death. death. He is the only one who has absorbed, absorbed death from the poisons of sin. He is the only one who has done that. We who believe have, have, that has been removed from our head, we no longer have to take on that wrath, that punishment, if we repent. Jesus goes on in verse 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. 
Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Between verses 15 and 16, and then a lot of our Bibles, there's this break. The Bible got divided into to paragraphs and sections, but this is really one long conversation or one part of a conversation. See, God did not send the serpents because he wanted to condemn his people. He didn't send the serpents into Israel's camp because he wanted to condemn the people. He sent them to bring about repentance and back into a right relationship with the Father, which is called reconciliation. That's what Christ provides us with. He he transforms us from an enemy of God into a son or daughter of God. There is this relationship renewal that happens, but for those who would not trust in God's word, For those who would not trust in God's word, those who would not believe in his promise of rescue from certain death to eternal life, to to, to real life, they were already condemned. The people were bitten. The poison was within them. Sin is in us. It is a reality. We deserve death. And for those who do not trust in God's promise, in his remedy from death to life, we are condemned already. Today, we all suffer from the same hardened hearts. This is, this is the reality of our world. This is the reality of the broken condition. We too are willing to writhe in pain as we foolishly embrace the agonizing sting from our own sin. We're willing to just, just deal with it. We're willing to, to, to roll around on the desert floor writhing in pain because of our own sting from sin. What Jesus is saying is that there is a remedy. He's telling us the problem and he's telling us there's a remedy for the pain because those who look to Jesus Christ escape death. That is the promise, that is the, that is the hope, that is the understanding of this truth of the gospel that we're talking about. Those who look to Jesus Christ escape death. We escape condemnation. We are given new life. All of the inheritance, all the spiritual blessings that are given to Christ, we receive because we are seen as he is to God. Our guilt is removed But if that is true, which it is, those who refuse it are as good as dead. Those who refuse it are as good as dead. Now I ask you, have you asked yourself this question, why in the world would anyone not look at Moses' staff? If all it took from a snake bite was to look at a staff, why is nobody looking at Moses' staff? But can't I ask, why do people not look to Christ on the cross? Why do people not look to Christ on the cross? Why do you not always look to Christ on the cross? Well, Jesus tells us why. Because he knows us. He knows man, verse 19. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And people loved the darkness, rather than the light, because their works were evil. 
For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. These last three verses, we're exposed to the truth that God is not unjust. He is never unjust. We either receive justice for our sin or we receive mercy in Christ. There's never an injustice done on God's part. What we see is that Jesus, again, fully knows us. John told us that in chapter 2, verse 25. Jesus knows what's in man. He understands. He knows the natural condition of our heart. That's why he came. Hello. In our natural condition, the condition that has been passed down from generation to generation is just like our, uh, as we're all born children of darkness. Our natural condition, or, uh, yeah, our natural condition has been passed down from generation to generation. And what I mean by that is that just like our physical condition is passed on from our fathers and our mothers, just like our physical condition, we both have two arms, we both have two eyes, a mouth, legs. Just like our physical condition is passed down, our spiritual condition is passed down. Just like Adam and Eve passed on their physical character, character traits, they also gave us our spiritual reality. And because of sin, death was brought to this world. Death was brought to us. And if left to our own choice, we will always choose to remain in the dark. If it's left to our choice, we will always choose to remain in the dark. The question then is, why do we do this? Why do we do this? I hope you're tracking with this passage so far because we've, 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 uh, we've traded the terms life and death for light and darkness. So why do people choose death? Why do people choose darkness when there's a cure for life that works 100% of the time? Why do people not choose the light when it, when it works 100% of the time? And John quotes Jesus in saying, it's because of our hatred for the light. Majority of us are Christians in here. What Jesus is telling us is because of our hatred for the light. If we're born in death, if we're born in darkness, then it goes along with our natural desire to stay away from the light. And for some of us, that's all we know. For some of us, that's all we know, and we will remain there because it is just simply comfortable because we understand how that feels. So we'll stay there. We'll stay there for a long time because we understand how that feels. But there's hatred because Jesus says our works are evil. Remaining there is evil. There's hatred because we know that the light can bring exposure and a humiliation. Repentance and exposing sin is not ever comfortable. We need to understand that. There's nothing comfortable about that. We are called to do so. It is an, uh, an act of obedience, but it is never comfortable. It's just a simple reality. But if you want what is true... 
If you want what is true, if you want to be truly known and fully loved so that everything can be clearly seen, Jesus has made a way. He has been lifted up. He has made a way. And in order to deal with it before God, you must bring it into the light. You must repent. That is the way that this works. That is how you are given life. You must repent of your sin. That is just how God has made it so. He doesn't do this to condemn us. He does this to give us life. I haven't dealt with a particular verse yet in this passage, one that's the most, probably one of the most famous verses in the Bible, and that's John 3.16. We all probably know this if you were brought up in a Christian home, or even if you haven't, even if you've never donned the door of a, or darkened the door of a church, you've probably heard this passage in your life if you live here in America. John 3.16 is is one of the most famous passages, and the reason why I want to deal with it specifically in this moment is because I want to make sure that we comprehend its weight and meaning because it anchors everything that Jesus is saying here. It anchors everything that Jesus is trying to communicate to Nicodemus. This is what it says. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not, or better said, will not perish, but have eternal life. That is what anchors all of what Nicodemus, or Jesus is saying to Nicodemus. This is not some sort of universal claim that all people will be saved in this world because Jesus came to save the whole world. We've already seen in the previous passages that we must be given eternal life by the Holy Spirit, and that proper faith in Christ is a necessary component of that. It's not a universal claim that all people are saved. We must have faith. We must have repentance. What I want you to see in this passage is what is actually given through who was given and why. What is actually given to us through who was given and why. The sting of eternal death has simply been replaced with eternal life. And I say simply because it's simple. It's easy to understand. You remain in darkness. You remain in death. And unless Christ gives you life through faith and repentance, you do not receive eternal life. It's simple. The sting of death has been replaced with eternal life, and that has only been accomplished because of God's love. Because God so loved us that he did this for us. God's love is utterly indescribable because he gave his only son over to death for us and his glory, and we have no way of understanding what that meant for God. We have no way of understanding what that meant for God. Seven years ago, this reality really hit me. When my precious Hudson was in the hospital with cancer, and we went about the treatment plan, we had to begin chemotherapy. And as and as Jen and I sat there in this tiny room, holding on to our precious girl, this tiny room made of curtains, as we sat there and we watched 
and watch this poison enter into her body, poison that we chose to give her. The agony of inflicting my daughter with this type of pain, even today, is only overcome by the joy of knowing that God is willing to give his son over to death for us and to give us life. It's the only thing that can take away that agony. There's nothing else to understand. There's nothing left to hear. There's no greater gift. Son of man must, the, the, the Son of Man was lifted up, and all you must do is cast your eyes on him. If you would pray with me. Father, <laughs> I desire to say that you are too good for us. You are too good to us. But we do not deserve your mercy. We do not deserve your love. But you give it anyways. You have given more than we can even comprehend and understand, Lord. You willingly poured out all the pain and suffering of this world upon your son. All the agony and stress and depression and frustration and worry on him. Father, help our hearts to understand that. Please break us to be pain for the things that pain you, Lord. Let us walk in the light. Lead us with your spirit and empower us to follow after you and fully give our lives to everything that you have called us to. But you are good, regardless of this brokenness. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.